welcome to the Wharton Fintech podcast. I'm your host Tarang Gupta and our guest today is Patrick Gauthier, CEO of Convera. Patrick is a long-time fintech specialist, having held senior leadership roles at Amazon, PayPal and Visa. He has deep expertise in developing high-performance teams and building high-growth businesses. Patrick holds several patents regarding payment systems and is a recognized thought leader on the future of commerce and payments with appearances on CNBC and at industry conferences. Patrick currently lives in Seattle and holds a master degree in computer science from Telecoms at Paris in France. Join me as we explore the unique cultures at Visa, PayPal and Amazon, the competitive advantages that have helped Convera become the largest non-bank B2B cross-border payments company in the world. challenges faced by b2b financial service organizations as compared to b2c organizations what working with jeff bezos is like and much more hope you enjoy the show hey patrick thank you so much for being on the podcast today how are you i'm very well thank you thank you very much for having me so where are you dialing in from i am dialing from uh, bainbridge washington so in the uh, the puget sound overlooking Seattle in the distance. It's uh it's a it's a nice interesting day today. Clouds and rain and sun all at once. That sounds fun. All right, diving into the questions. For our listeners who may not know, could you provide an overview of your career and how you got involved in fintech? Yeah, sure. So, I was uh born and raised in France originally as an engineer. I I was a geek. Uh started coding when I was 10. and uh and love everything technology um i started as an engineer and um uh, had an opportunity as i was working on industrial products to move into product marketing and what intrigued me in product marketing was kind of this notion of you know the the product always work in the lab or on the board but when it's confronted with reality and how it's understood it can be a wide range of outcome and that led me to uh to the US and uh to pivot the the industrial equipment that I was in was related to chips and to pivot into the payments industry as payments industry was really starting to modernize and and you'd see the emergence of fintech what has intrigued me in the payments industry all along is it can be sort of the most boring and the most exciting thing all at once so if you think payments is about moving money or credit is about renting money it's about as boring as it can get but if you think it's about powering uh commerce and commerce is really uh the 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 make of many people's dreams then it's a fascinating industry with many aspects that range from legal to technical to behavioral and uh I've never looked uh I've never looked behind I've worked on uh the transformation of the consumer payments for quite a while and as such then you also work on the on the acceptance side what merchants do i did that at visa and at paypal and then most recently at amazon and uh for the last few years i was very intrigued by what was going to happen in the transformation of commercial payments uh business to business because most of the fintech innovation had been on the on the retail side and this is what led me to convera uh as an opportunity to really make a, a mark in the b2b payment space as you mentioned you worked at amazon pay visa paypal like some of the biggest fintech or financial services organizations in the world what are the differences in culture uh, at each of these organizations like what did you love about each of them uh, very very good question 
let me let me run uh, from Visa. So, if you want to understand v, uh, payments uh, and certainly the multi-party system, Visa is the place to be. It's the it's where the notion of the multi-party system was created by D. Hawk, you know, over forty years ago, and in of itself was a massive business innovation. The the fact that you could create a joint venture of competitors in order to co-own an infrastructure that benefited everybody uh, in the 70s. This was truly a, a, a breakthrough business innovation. And so at Visa, you, you, you really get immersed into all the various aspects of payment, as I said, you know, technical, legal, behavioral, marketing, and so on, et cetera. Um, and it's a company, obviously, with a very strong brand and therefore a strong culture behind the brand. Uh, I when I went to PayPal, what I thought was really interesting in PayPal is this notion of challenger. So Visa for a long time has been the largest, uh, you know, of the payment network, and uh, and you sort of approach business problem in a little bit in a different way when you're the champion than when you're the challenger. And PayPal was the challenger, you know, as a smaller company, but also with a completely different perspective on what the consumer experience should be starting with a wallet versus starting with a token. Um, it was also, you know, as really e-commerce was sort of taking off in strides and uh, a, a completely different approach to, therefore, the digitization of a lot of things that we do and the opportunity it opens up with, uh, with um, uh, wallets. Amazon, uh, for me, uh, was, a, was a really... Uh, important part of uh, of my career. Um, Amazon is a fearlessly customer centric company. It 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 permeates everything that the company does. It really is. You know, lots of companies say they're customer centric. It, at Amazon, it truly is the the lingua franca of the company. Uh, there's a reason why the company is fairly frugal on a number of fronts internally. You know, you don't see. You don't see beanbags and big parties and so on at Amazon. And that's because Jeff has always thought that, you know, we shouldn't be spending money on ourselves. We should be spending money on our customers. There's all sorts of, of business processes that are centered around understanding what we do right, what we do wrong with for the customer and then evolving as a consequence. And this idea that the future is, is going to be brighter, you know, Amazon has a saying about saying it's always day one because the implication being we have so much left to do ahead of us. And so this, this notion really was very core to me. Amazon is very, um, I haven't said very structured in its thinking. I do believe that, you know, at some point in the future, you will see, just like you saw a book written about Six Sigma and how GE transformed management. I think you will see books written about how Amazon has transformed management, in particular, the management of innovation at scale. And um, it was a difficult decision for me to actually decide to to leave Amazon. Um, and in one of the kind of the trigger moments in me was, well, I have the opportunity to shape the culture of an organization uh, according to some of the things that I truly enjoyed, that truly felt liberating as a leader while working at Amazon. So switching to Convera, what is Convera all about? What services do you offer? So Convera is the largest non-bank B2B uh, global payment uh, company in the world. Uh, we service over 30,000 uh, businesses and about 200 companies. 
And we basically enable um, payments in over 140 currencies. If, if you're a business that has global aspiration or really a, a business that will grow by virtue of being exposed to global clients, then uh, we have an opportunity to help you with uh, the capacity to afford payments globally. So um, payments uh, on a global basis gets a bit complicated, right? Uh, moving money across borders is is not as easy as as uh, as it seems. Lots of regulatory constraints that 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 create sort of hurdles in doing this. Uh, there are also risks associated with you know, fraud, bad actors, and so on. And uh, last but not the least, in many of the types of, of payments that business do, the payments, you know, unlike with consumer where the payments is now in a business, the payment could be in the future uh, because you're buying something is going to be delivered three, six, nine months in the future. And so an integral part of what we do is to help businesses manage payment in the future through hedging products, options, and so on. Our core value proposition is to make it simpler and uh, less uh, less volatile uh, for a, a company to do global payments. So we, we bring peace of mind to the CFO so that those companies can therefore focus on really growing their business and the core attributes. Like, you know, one of our clients here in North America is an import exporter, large import exporter of, um, of uh, exotic uh, uh, fruits and vegetables. And, uh, you know, especially post-COVID with all the logistics issue, one of the core elements of their business is securing the right transportation and logistics because obviously what they have is perishable. Well, when I ask them, I always, when I meet our customers, I always ask them, when we're at our best, what do we do for you? And his answer was immediately, well, I don't have to worry about getting paid or paying my suppliers and all the uncertainties that come along with it. Therefore, it allows me to focus more on securing the logistics that are so critical to our business. And this is a really good example of what we do. Can you dive a bit deeper into the business model and how do you earn revenue? Along with, as you said, that Convera is the largest non-bank B2B cross-border mm-hmm. payments company, right? Mm-hmm. What is that sets you apart from the competition? Why are you the dominant player? Yeah, sure. So let me let me start with the business model first. There, there are two fundamental ways in which we support transactions. Um, sort of payments, spot transactions. And there, the business model right associated with this is usually some form of, uh, of revenue rates. And then we have a set of products related to hedging and options where we uh, we are basically providing hedging contracts to to our clients, and there the business model is based on on the spread uh, with uh, that that we have with other counterparties. Um, on this latter one, um, we don't trade on our book, so we have no trading revenue per se on our book. We when we we take a hedging contract with a client, then we also take an opposing. A hedging contract with a financial institution. And so part of our business model here is you think of us as an aggregator of a lot of, you know, sophisticated uh, uh, hedging tools for, uh, for financial institutions who would not necessarily go after this business on their own. And this sort of sets us, it's sort of, is at the core of what sets us apart. Um, the history of Convera goes about, you know, several decades. Uh, this is a business we, we deeply know and understand, inclusive of 
the things that may not feel necessarily very glamorous, but actually uh, in, end up being what kills a company in this space, which are risk and compliance. Um, when you're in payment and you're moving lots of money, last year we moved $170 billion. You know, if you don't manage your risk very well, it's, it's uh, bad things can happen and, and you get out of business. But compliance is even more black and white. You know, there are uh, reasons why uh, payment is a highly regulated uh, industry, and that's because it can be a force for good, commerce. It also can be a force for, ga- for bad, you know, whether it's organized crime, terrorist financing, and so on. And, and so um, the, the, the regulators is actually, in, in our ways, is our friend. They, they really help keep the industry safe, you know. If you if you studied what uh, what occurred a couple of years ago with Wirecard, n- nobody benefits when you have an event like Wirecard, a company that went you know a rogue on some of its accounting and therefore imploded. Nobody benefits, and the regulators really help here to to help the industry. Well, in this day and age, uh, regulation and compliance are becoming quite complex. You just have to follow the what occurred, for instance, around uh, the conflict between Russia and Ukraine and all the sanctions that have been deployed. So one of the things that we do for our clients is we handle risk management and compliance with all the sophistication that comes from decades of experience and the system that come along with it. And in many ways, we are bank grade from that standpoint. But at the same time as we're bank grade, we also have uh, a deep uh, a DNA of uh, customer service and uh, a lot of the customers that we have, which are not, you know, I mean, which can be relatively large. We serve billion-dollar companies. But this super large enterprise, of course, will have multiple banking relationship. And the banks cater to those clients very, very well. We have the capacity to provide really a high level of service to uh, companies that may not receive that from, uh, from financial institution. On the other side, you know, we compete with a lot of companies in fintech. And uh, what what we have that differentiates us is the reach of Convera. Uh, so establishing a payment network like the one we have, a settlement network on a global basis across this many currency, actually is, is easier said than done. And it translates, obviously, into the capacity to service companies around the world. As I said, 140 currencies. And this is a really important differentiator when, when it comes to other companies in this space. Some people might not be aware, but Convera was established when Western Union Business Solutions was spun off as a standalone entity. And that is when you came in as a CEO. Why did you take this role at such a transitionary point in time? And what were the challenges and opportunities that you saw when this happened? So, as I mentioned earlier, I had been you know, sort of noodling over ideas on the commercial side of payments. Uh, you know, 20, years, 20 years of transformation, the consumer side of payment. Can, can really show what you can do if you modernize payment infrastructure and payment experiences. And not a lot has changed on the commercial side of things. So I was, I was intrigued now for, for a number of years about it when our investors sort of approached me to help them think through uh, the investment thesis and then through the due diligence of the company. And so I had the benefit of being exposed to both the, 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 the people I would work with as my investors and the people that I would work with uh, uh, as as uh, folks in the in the company, and in both cases, um, 
I saw a lot of opportunity, a lot of opportunity for, for, for building a, a great company. I'm a builder. As I said, I started coding when I was 10. I've always built, I build products, I build team, I build businesses. And so I, I could see the potential both in the marketplace associated with uh, the size and opportunity of, of uh, uh, commercial payments. And in the particular context of, uh, of Convera, the people that I would be working with, the culture, the existing culture of the company, and and where my experience could fill some gaps and really uh, help grow Convera to its full potential. And uh, there was a point, I loved my job at Amazon, but I woke up one night in the middle of the night and to borrow from Jeff Bezos, uh, who, who speaks about the uh, re- regret minimization framework. I woke up in the middle of the night and realized if I don't do this, I will, I will forever wonder. And then that was it. What is the vision that you have for Convera? Where do you see the company five years from now? Yeah. So one of the areas of opportunity for the company is definitely to really modernize uh, the way it functions. Uh, I said very strong customer uh, uh, customer centricity in, in customer service DNA, very strong competencies in the core areas of how you run a business like this. Uh, opportunities to really uh, be uh, uh, at a high level of performance when it comes to technology and the use of modern tools. And so we've embarked in a multi-year uh, modernization plan with, with some fairly massive investment in the, in the hundreds of millions of dollars that will really help us uh, transform the experience of our customers and allow us to service our clients you know, faster, better, uh, with with uh, more accuracy, more on their own terms, and so on. This is at the core of what we want to do. We're going to continue to grow. You know, we operate in a space where we've barely s- scratched the surface. We estimate that uh, uh, we uh, we've penetrated about one percent of the potential of the market that we're in. So we're going to grow. We're going to grow fast. We're going to leverage technology to do that, in order to better to continue to really serve our customers very well. One more interesting trend that is coming up is the prevalence of crypto in fintech. And the cross-border payment segment is one where there's a very clear use case. Do you see Convera entering into the crypto space or DeFi space? Um, so I'm, I'm very uh, customer-driven. You know, Part of the reasons why I, I really enjoy my time at Amazon is this customer centricity. And I really pay attention to, to customer needs. Now, Paying attention to customer needs, by the way, often means asking multiple times what they care about. Because the first time you get into the feature space, and then eventually you get into really the benefit space. I have now for a decade been a crypto skeptic. I think the the underlying technology with crypto is eminently elegant, and the engineer in me really uh, appreciate what uh, what is done. But so far, crypto has been a speculative asset class not so much a payment solution. And so I think there's some element of the underlying uh, technology that are indeed going to find their ways in, in uh, multiple space in the processing chain of payments, whether it be uh, a global or not. But uh, the currencies themselves, I think there's still quite a bit to be resolved. It is likely that the trigger point will be uh, central bank uh, uh, driven, so versus uh, private uh, private currencies, because uh, the fact of the matter is central banks still believe it's their responsibility to manage the monetary mass of a, com- of a country. And I think we can all agree, you know, in, in these days of inflation, that it's probably a good idea that they, they would continue to be in control of the monetary mass. Uh, 
unless we want uh, uh, hyperinflation to govern us. And so um, I think as the central banks really digitize the supply of money and the technology continues to mature, it's going to open some doors. What we're doing with Convera is really monitoring a lot of how this would help our customers solve some of their problems. And then, you know, and then we'll lean in. We have the competency to do that. Near term, I think there's more interesting doors open with real-time payments. Real-time payments, first of all, uh, has benefits from a cash flow perspective for uh, the participants to the transaction. It's, there's more, it's more deterministic. Uh, it dramatically changes how you do risk management and how you do also customer service. Your ability to recall, refund, and so on is, is very different. And uh, so I think real-time payments are going to be an accelerant, especially uh, for, for commercial payments, uh, probably ahead of, uh, of crypto itself. Now, the crypto universe is going to continue to have transactions, as we see. But as I said, more along the line of uh, what remains a relatively speculative asset class than as a true payment solution. And I think the, the experience in, uh, in El Salvador has sort of proven that, right, that it's, it's uh, I'm sorry, Costa Rica, it's a little bit easier to uh, envision what crypto could be than actually get uh, traction with, uh, with businesses and people because the problems that it solves are not always clear. The key resource that a company has is people. So my next question is, is Conveyor hiring? If yes, what do you look for in the in potential colleagues? Yes, um, we are definitely hiring. We are hiring, you know, across the board. We're hiring people in in tech. We're hiring people in marketing. We're hiring people in in sales. We're hiring people in um, central function like HR and so on. What uh, one of the core things that I I look for in people that meet the company is a growth mindset. And a growth mindset just doesn't mean it's not just about growing the business. It's about the ability to take calculated risk be comfortable with failing from time to time and being good at learning from that. You, you can only grow if you try things that are unproven and if you learn from your trials. Uh, and this is one of the core attributes that I look at people. Second, we are in a knowledge business and uh, there are no cowboys that solve everything in a business like ours. And so the capacity to work with others and, you know, team and so on are, are sort of evident, but it's, it's a little bit more nuanced than that. It's the capacity to communicate efficiently, the capacity to sort of delegate or to, uh, uh, or to work with the team in a way that is, that is efficient in order to bring the best solution to the, for, the, for the customers are core element of what I see in people. And then last but not least, especially with leaders, we're in a space, especially currently, that is fraught with opportunity, but also fraught with challenges. The opportunities are the modernization of commercial payments. The challenges are, you know, just look at the news, right? There is a lot of uh, macroeconomic headwinds, left, right, and center. And so uh, leaders have a lot of decisions to make. And ultimately, that is the most important thing a leader does, is to make good decisions. And making good decisions does not mean analyzing forever, uh, because a good decision, there's a timestamp, a time value to a decision. And so it's this capacity to balance analysis and judgment uh, and then communicate the decision that you make uh, and, and to do that on a timely basis and then accept the fact that 
sometimes your decisions will be wrong. And when, once you find that out, you know, be able to walk it back and more importantly, recognize it and learn, learn from it. For my next segment, I want to ask more macro level questions about the fintech industry, right? So my first question is, you have, you're an expert in the fintech space or the financial services space. How is or what are the different challenges that a B2B financial services organization faces as compared to a B2C financial services organization? Yeah, good question. I think uh, a couple of things. So first of all, the B2C space have been modernizing and adopting a number of technology for now 20 years, right? It started with chip card, digital wallets, uh, mobile phone, etc. And you've seen a real acceleration and more importantly, uh, an adoption and acceptance by consumers of these forms of payment. In B2B, uh, there's still some of that road is still, uh, still has to be uh, laid down. The second, uh, second difference is, has to do with infrastructure. And so in B2B, you have to integrate with a number of components of the infrastructure of a company and do that in a way, obviously, that is effective. And so the technical aspect of the work, what we do is uh, more, uh, over time, more sophisticated, I would say, than the consumer aspect. The, the, there's an element in the consumer aspect of the sheer number of transactions, right? In, in commercial space, the average ticket obviously is much bigger and therefore the transaction count is, uh, is different on average. But you, know, you have this element of technical integration in products that are far more uh, evolved than, you know, even if you're a consumer and let's say you travel to Europe, right? And you swipe your card, okay, it goes through some pipes, et cetera. Your experience as a consumer is probably uh, uh, goes down to, uh, you know, on your statement, you're going to see uh, the, 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 the amounts in your home, in your home currency and, the, and then the, the foreign currency fee. In commercial payments, uh, it is much more evolved. The risk management, the compliance management, the managing of large amounts uh, crossing borders, uh, the future element of that, those are all fairly technical in nature uh, and fairly nuanced. And so there's a degree of difficulty that is different, uh, which is, by the way, what makes it exciting to me. Which economies do you think would play a greater role in the global fintech space in the future? Do you see a shift from the concentration of innovation and power from Western economies to other economies? Uh, definitely. This has been going on now for a while, right? So, yes, you do have certainly some very important economies in the West that have been driving fintech. The U.S., the U.K., Northern Europe, for instance, have really played an important role. Uh, but uh, for sure, we've seen over the last decade some uh, really important areas of innovation, in particular in China and India. Right, so in India, if I look at the launch of UPI and uh, some of the work that is being done by uh, the uh, the Bank of India as well as the sort of the regulators generally, have truly been groundbreaking in terms of enabling new types of services and modernizing the infrastructure in India in a way that actually many other countries now are learning from and duplicating. In China, what we saw is uh, the adoption of a very mobile-centric way of paying and you know, uh, uh, and financial, the rise of N financial, uh, who is a massive switch, uh, China Union Pay, who is also a massive switch in terms of the volume of transaction that they process, China becoming the second economy in the world, you know, on the, the, the heel of a, of a, uh, uh, 
two-generation modernization of its economy really has spurned a lot of innovation. And so I think there's a lot to be learned about what happens in, in, uh, in China as well as what happens in India. On the flip side, are there any segments or verticals within fintech that you are bearish on? For example, a common one that I've heard is a lot of experts are bearish on buy now, pay later. One of the mistakes that I often see is people sort of fall in love or out of love with certain ways of doing payments on a fairly short-term basis. And so, you know, for instance, when, when I was working on contactless payment, it was fascinating to see how the forecast for contactless payment was always in three years, it's going to take off, right? And of course, you make that forecast for three, four, five years in a row and people become a little bit disillusioned. The truth is, the you know, it's, it's a mistake to look at payment waves. What you need to look is at payment tides because you have both infrastructure diffusion factors as well as behavioral factor that are at play. And you, you don't want to, you know, you don't want to learn how to pay. You don't want to get a guide, you know, paying for the dummies before you're, whether you're a consumer or a business. Uh, it has to be integrated into how you operate and more importantly, how you buy. And so that component means that you have to watch for the tide, not for the waves. And if you watch for the waves, then yeah, you're going to get you know, ecstatic and then bearish, ecstatic, bearish, ecstatic, bearish, but you're going to miss the macro trend. And some of the macro trends, for instance, for me have been indeed the digitization of payments, the fact that you really are going tokenless, the fact that you have a capacity to then get data out of the payment flow, whether you're a consumer or whether you're a business, and then leverage that data in the way you manage your finances. Uh, the fact that real-time payment has, has grown, grown, grown is really a fundamental. Personally, I think buy now, pay later is now going through its first uh, trial in truth. You know, a credit, a, a type of credit product will always uh, work well when money is cheap and the economy is strong and therefore you don't have a lot of losses. We are now entering a period where uh, just losses related to the credit portfolio as well as the funding costs going up. Does that mean that it's a bad experience and a bad concept for, for customers? No, absolutely not. I think the appetite that we've seen uh, is, is there to show that there is an opportunity. But you certainly have to understand the fundamental and separate them from the contextual. And, and I think we will see coming out of what is clearly going to be uh, a still a, a period of choppy water from the macroeconomics, we're going to see companies coming out on the other side that will have uh, survived what is a Darwinian effect and will therefore be offering in this particular space a service that will be robust and, and, and using an infrastructure that will be resilient. I think we'll see the same in, in a range of other places. So I would look at payments with, with an eye towards you know, the, the seminal trends and how you tap into the seminal trends, not into the product du jour. That's truly an interesting answer. For the last segment of the questions, what I'd like to do is have a rapid fire series of questions that introduce you more as a person, more as an individual to our listeners. My first question for you is, what is a fun fact about you that most people don't know? My first job was a ski instructor. I grew up in the Alps. I love to ski. I started skiing when I was five. And my first job at 16 was as a ski instructor. 
what happened what made you change the career you did not like that um no well i also i also love technology as i said earlier i i, I truly <laughs> love to to code and and to build stuff and uh and i studied in paris and so it was not as easy to go to go ski but uh i still have a deep love for everything that you can do in a mountain for sure out of amazon visa and paypal which organization has had the m- most impact on your leadership abilities and your leadership style definitely amazon uh definitely amazon amazon is a fascinating company as i said i think many books will be written about it look it's i joined amazon in 2015 the company was 150000 people when i left 7 years later it was a million and a half massive massive growth you know amazon as a as a business is uh uh produces more revenue than the gdp of a number of countries on the planet it does so with an unusual precision a focus an undying focus on customers an element of sort of mixing <laughs> mixing science and humanities and what i mean by this is it's a very data driven company you has been using data and ai forever on a range of things and part of the reasons why we can enjoy you know one day shipping or one hour shipping is because of some of the technologies happening behind the scenes and yet at the same time i found that it was uh there was a, a, a truly uh, a human dimension to amazon which i think most people don't realize but for instance it's a, it's a meritocracy um everybody has the same benefits all the ceo has the same benefits as a frontline as a frontline uh, employee it's uh it has a deep focus on the development of people uh this is the company that work at that had the most attention to uh performance development as a way to see how you can grow the skill of people etc uh because of the focus on on learning uh, from you know taking bets and learning from them and being so customer centric and be those so data centric it's a company that doesn't have a lot of of internal strife like the what's important is really clear it's like do what's right for the customer and and try new things and it's very liberating as a consequence you know you you're not looking over your back etc and so um it's, it's a company i've learned enormous amount um i certainly encourage everyone who wants to understand amazon to read about the amazon leadership principles which are not the thing that uh the company makes big posters off you know searing eagles or whatever uh they're they're very down to earth and they really help understand the core culture of the company and i think it's a it's a very uh transformative and liberating culture sort of follow on to that most of us have seen have seen mr bezos in interviews or conferences but i'm sure you would have seen him outside of work what is he like outside of work well uh no i'm no I'm, i wouldn't say i've seen jeff outside of work you know i've 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 interacted with him Uh, from time to time at work jeff is is you know he does what he preaches it's a it's very clear so for instance when you present a product to or presented a project to to jeff bezos he would first ask people to explain with clarity what's the customer problem we solve like a product discussion never started with here's the size of the market here's our swot analysis like you know all the stuff that you learn in an mba um what jeff always would start with is help me understand what's the customer problem you're solving why why does this matter and then help me understand the customer experience how does the customer get the product experience the product you know use the product etc 
Um, and once there was clarity on that, then we could discuss about, well, what, what would be the demand signals that would cause us to scale and how would we scale and where would we take it? This approach is, is again, very liberating because, first of all, it creates intense clarity on what we're trying to solve and it really anchors it into the value you bring to your customers. The other thing that I personally appreciated about uh, about him was, uh, and sort of keeping with this notion of meritocracy, you're in a meeting room with Jeff. He's going to talk to the person who has the most knowledge about the topic. So I have a particular meeting in mind where we were presenting him a product, and you know, there was an SVP and a couple of VPs in the room, and and there was, the product manager was there. And for 45 minutes, it was a conversation between Jeff and the product managers and all of the others, like, we stood back because she knew better. She was the one that was delivering on some of the specifics of the product. And the person who would answer Jeff's question with the best accuracy was her. And, uh, you know, in many organizations, you know, you see, you see top leaders who will not talk to anyone below VP or below whatever, some artificial barrier. And that's ridiculous. I think you have to go to who knows best. What advice would you give to people who want to be future CEOs? How can one position themselves to be a better business leader? Yeah, I think so. First, I I have a fundamental problem with the hero worship of the CEO. You know, I, I, I truly believe, or at least the CEOs that I admire, are people who empower their organization rather than being kind of the, the top alpha uh, uh, in the organization. I think the role of a leader, not just a CEO, any good leader, is to provide clarity and direction for a team of people that creates and implements a common vision and a common mission. And so like example of that would be, be good at making decisions and making decisions, making them on a timely basis and be able to explain them, communicate them, lead with questions, lead with questions. There's always somebody in the room that knows better than the top leader. What the top leader has is a broader context but there's always somebody that knows better. So what's important for leaders to lead with question, to understand what the people with the expertise are saying, right? And to surround yourself with, with humble and inquisitive people, curious people. Uh, an element of curiosity for me that matters is meet customers as much as you can. I had a, a partner uh, in Japan when, uh, when we were at Amazon, the company and the company CEO, the first time we met, uh, use this beautiful phrase. She said, the, the customer is my teacher. And using in Japanese the word sensei, which is obviously a very powerful word, right? And I truly believe in that. You know, we, we did phenomenal business with that company because we had this common belief that the customer is our teacher, that if you truly listen, you're able to better serve them. If you better serve them, your business is going to be successful. As I said earlier, if you make, you know, if you, if you, the definition of innovation and definition of pushing the boundaries is you're doing things that have not done before. Therefore, it's going to fail from time to time. You have to be comfortable with that. You have to be comfortable with the idea of failing and the idea of acknowledging that you failed. When you do that, what's interesting about it is when you do that, you actually earn the trust and the followership of teams uh, who know that uh, you, you will you know, not throw them under the bus, that that you're interested in, in success of the team versus your personal success. And when you, when, if you're only interested in your personal success, you know, you're limited by 10 fingers, 24 hours in the day. If you are uh, tapping into the know-how and the motivation of a team, uh, sky's the limit. 
And last thing I would say, you know, keep it human. We are all, uh, yeah, we all human. So know your, know your people, laugh and toil together. Totally keep it human. On that note, Patrick, I'll let you get back to work. But thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for sharing your wisdom with us. It was really, really insightful. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the what in fintech podcast if you like the show then please show us some love on social media or consider leaving a review it means a lot to us and helps spread the word to more listeners if you want more content from our fintech community please subscribe to our podcast and find us on linkedin instagram twitter and medium at what in fintech there you will find interviews articles videos and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry As always special thanks to our editor Rafael Osteria signing off until next time I'm your host Tarang Gupta